I'd now like to um, introduce our next two speakers, um, learning from the past and looking to the future, Peter Westerby and Jason Nardi. I'm really pleased that these guys can um, have this lovely conversation. First, I'm really pleased to have Peter Westerby from um, University of Queensland and also um, a whole range of community development projects too extensive to list. He and I had lunch many moons ago and we were talking about the new economy movement and within five minutes he kind of succinctly said, so are you going to look at, and then he rattled off this beautiful concise history of social movements responding to industrialisation and I just said, that's great. Would you like to give the same sort of spiel, but with maybe five more minutes at our conference? So I'm very pleased that someone like Peter, who's um, devoted a lot of time to his research and other activities, can give us a nice overview of where we've been. Um, and then I'm really thrilled, Jason Nardi, who's all the way from Italy, and I think that deserves a big round of applause. Thank you. And Jason's involved in a whole range of social solidarity organisations and movements in Europe and also Repess International. So um, we're very, really pleased that he can join us. He's going to talk a little bit about some of the new economy trends or some of the stuff that's happening around the world. Over to you, Peter. Thank you so much. Thanks. <laughs> Two white men. Don't forget your microphone. Yeah, can, can you hear me? Um, no, I'd say that with serious um, trepidation and I'm aware Bell Hooks said we, you know, we come to theory because of our pain and in some ways I feel men are not feeling enough pain and therefore not coming to theory enough to reflect on what's going on. Um, hmm? uh, yeah, we, you know, I, <laughs> I'm kind of like, what can I say to this mob of people don't know? Other than actually when I was given the topic, histories of new economies, I went, oh shit, one, I'm not a historian. And last night I went and hurt Robert Fisk, the great you know, Middle Eastern correspondent historian down the road, and I thought, shit, that's what a real historian sounds like. So I'm feeling a bit worried. And also I thought, I have no idea what this thing, the new economy is. When, when you gave the topic, I was like, I, I really don't know. I, I've studied political economy, the social economy, the, the new economy, that just sounds like a load of rubbish. It, it's new economy every day, you know, it's just new. And, um, and then, but I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. And, and then I got the 3 p.m. slot and I went, shit, like that's my siesta time. <laughs> and, and I really am at my worst. And, and then I read Robert Desaillet's latest book on pleasure and I discover that he thinks the siesta is the greatest act of resistance to capitalism because it means you are non-productive between nine and five. And I just thought, this, this is fantastic. I resist at about 3 p.m. every day and, and we could build a whole theory of siesta, buying less stuff, which I mean, lunic called gunk, we de-gunkify the world and we get back into politics. That's my praxis. But anyway, this new economy thing, which doesn't exist, it's, there's no such thing. It's, uh, economy is a dialectic between theory, practice, history. That's just the way history is, as Richard was kind of implying. Uh, but I did kind of meditate for a, about a month, going, what is new, what is new? And then I read Martin Buber again, my great German philosopher, who said, actually, and I love this, he said, we must think of new in the sense of history's claim on each person and each new generation. 
And in that sense, I thought, yes, the new economy is us trying to discern what is history's claim on us right now. Um, and, and I think we're trying to make sense of that. And, and I think maybe a historical perspective gives us the sort of broader arc to try and discern what is the claim. So I wanted to kind of try and just three broad brush arcs, although I wanted to share one tiny story before that because I'm a lover of Modragon, yes, the great cooperative of the Basque region of Spain. You know, it's 80,000 members, um, 120 cooperatives of the Federation, and you probably know a shitload about it, but I don't. But you know a bit of the story that's probably relevant historically that most of us don't know is that the first cooperative was started, I think, 1956. I've got the date there, yes. But you know what? A priest by the name of Father Aramazedi arrived in the Basque region in 1941. And in the 15 years between arriving and the cooperative started, he ran over 2,000 study circles with the Basque people, helping them reflect on the conditions that they were living in, make sense of the political economy. We should never be talking about the economy as a separate from It's political economy. Politics makes it. And, um, and then rethinking an associational life. And out of those study circles and people's reflection, they built the beginnings of the Mogdragon Cooperative. And I think when we think of I'm a community social practitioner, one of the big polarities in social practice is the polarity between intervention and action and observation analysis. And we are very good at intervention. We, we act. We love acting, you know? And what that story really reminds me is we need to spend a lot more time in observation, reflection and learning before we act. You know, and then we get it right. Um, so so that, that's kind of one of the lessons from the social movements. Okay? But the three big arcs of history that I just wanted to highlight, and you could highlight ten. One is the one, um, the, the great book that was mentioned by Michelle this morning, Pogliani's the, the Great Transformation. He's the guy that really identified that the history of economics is basically the disembedding of the social from the economic. You know, when you think of the original marketplace, it was a real physical bodied market. Social interactions, people relating, obligations. Um, that, you know, you couldn't screw someone economically because then they'd come around to your house and knock you on the head. Like, they knew who you were. And so, and, and of course, the history has seen the disembeddedness of the social from the economic. The, you know, the most extreme being the financialization of the economy that we now live with. So Pogliani kind of traced that history, the Great Transformation. He called that the first movement. He said that Inevitably, there's a second movement, and it's the response, the reaction to that, that historically has always kept occurring of people wanting to re-embed the social within the economic. Okay, you all know that. But I think it's good to realise, as we think we're building the new economy, this has been going on forever. There's been a dialectic, that's a lovely word, for tension, an interaction between those that, that just want to remove relationship and the social and, of course, the ecological from the economic, and those of us that say, fuck off. No, we value the relational. We value the social. We don't want to be just efficient. We value also being in relationship. So this is a part of the history, OK? So it just goes on and on, OK? So it's first big arc. I'm, I'm really shortening, eh? 
the second big arc, similar, is the, the kind of dialectic tension between what we think of as enclosure versus commoning. Yeah? So, you know, we know that the big kind of industrial revolution was also fueled by the enclosure movement. So the great first enclosure laws in the British kind of common law where people could no longer just enjoy the commons, you know, go and shoot ducks or whatever, swans was it? Um, farm, they couldn't anymore. They were forced off the land because it was literally enclosed by lords and the feudal system started to take control and people ended up in the cities because they couldn't live off the land. So they became cheap labour. This, is, this continues now. I, I mean, I work with Kristen Lyons, a colleague in Uganda. We're looking at the whole new carbon trading system as it unfolds in the global south, and we're seeing the enclosure of forests. So forests that you know people used to live off, they would go into the forest with their cattle, they'd go into sacred sites. They can no longer go into those forests because companies are locking them up. 35-year guaranteed lockup means they can trade the capture of carbon of those forests on the European carbon trade market. So we're seeing enclosure. The great Lake Victoria, you know, loads of, loads of people living off that lake in terms of fishing commons, where they can go fishing and get their food, no longer. It's being locked up by big corporations that are using aqua fishing. So, you know, this enclosure movement continues. But in that Pollyanni tradition, there's the resistance and we see the commoning movement that's trying to undo the enclosure and you know we're seeing many movements of commoning from wikipedia to platform cooperatives as opposed to uber kind of cooperatives to well, you know just endless um, reinvigorations of commoning so this this our new economy is not new people we're just refighting for commons that people have been doing historically and we're beautifully fortunate that indigenous people here can teach us about commoning. And I say this because I wanted to make a point. I'm a community development scholar. I love community, but I don't. I always say to my students, God, community would be great. You could just get rid of the bloody people. You know, like, like, so a lot of us in this room, like, you all like the idea of commoning? Commoning? Yes. Commoning is kind of linked to cooperation. Cooperation is linked to community. Community equals obligation. Modern people hate obligation. That's the whole point, people. You don't want to be obligated to anyone. You want to be able to do what you want, when you want, how you want. We love modernity. I, I love that mad Slovenian, is it? Sizek? Yeah, because he says, I love being an anonymous stranger in the city. I can do what I want. Bugger off, you community people. <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, he's, he's writing about communism. I, I don't quite get how he works that out. Um, so my point is, I'm all for a commoning, kind of. And, and what I mean by that is there's a theory practice issue here, people. We love cooperatives. We love the idea of it. I've been a member of a cooperative for 20 years. It's bloody hard work. Okay, so I just want to say that. I've got five minutes. I can do this easily. Third big arc of history. Remember, I could have chose ten. I'm just doing three. Uh, transition theory. Transition theory teaches us a wonderful thing. There has always been a dialectic between innovation and resistant regimes. Always. Yeah? 
And usually it takes between 20 to 70 years for the innovation to move from the margins to the mainstream. I think Richard mentioned tractors this morning, yeah? Did you? Is he gone? Uh, when tractors arrived, I don't know how many years it took, but, you know, that moved to the mainstream and that was it. Goodbye, you know, agrarian peasant work in North America. Gone. Like it, but the point is there will always be innovation and there will always be resistant regimes. And we're in the middle of that dialectic conflict around energy transition, as, as Amanda mentioned very well. Uh, in Australia, that is between coal and renewables. Well, I do a lot of work in South Africa. It's a huge struggle going on at the moment between the nuclear industry and renewables. It's not so much coal, it's renewables. Um, and, and as you also mentioned, this dialectic struggle isn't just about energy, it's about new forms of democracy. And I think energy is a really interesting one because it does take us to, to the issue of democracy. I think the Bolivian Prime Minister or President, you know, Eva Morales once said, you know, the thing about democracy is that, you know, political democracy is based on economic democracy and economic democracy is based on energy democracy or sovereignty. If you don't have energy sovereignty, you're, you're stuffed and at the end of the day. People can manipulate your politics. Um, you know, what, Germany now, 47% of energy generated is owned by citizens. And it's astounding. We're seeing a transformation of citizenship, participation, democracy. And I think the resistant regimes in Australia are very aware of that. So it's no, they, know, they know this isn't just about economic transition and energy transition. They know it's about democratic transition. And what political economists are telling us, actually, as they look around the world, is that one of the way the resistant regimes is dealing with this is that they're not only building a sort of corporate state alliance against citizens, but there's the emergence of shadow states where they're really working the murky grounds behind the scenes. And we actually, so the, the, the struggle is kind of at its um, most generative in some ways, which is edgy, because when systems are on the edge, um, it's very messy. And I think I just got the big finger. Time to stop. Jason, you came all the way from Italy.